место предисловия. Страшные годы Ежовщины я провела 17 месяцев в тюремных очередях в Ленинграде. Как-то раз кто-то опознал меня. Тогда стоящая за мной женщина с голубыми губами, которая, конечно, никогда не слыхала моего имени, очнулась от свойственного нам всем оцепенения и спросила меня на ухо. Там все говорили шепотом. «А это вы можете описать?» И я сказала «Могу». Она что-то вроде улыбки казнула потому, что некогда было ее лицом. Instead of a preface, during the terrifying years of the Yezhov repressions, I spent 17 months in Leningrad prison lines. One time, someone thought they recognized me. Then a woman standing behind me, who of course had never heard my name, stirred from her own though common to all of us, stupor, and asked in my ear, there all spoke in a whisper, could you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something akin to a smile slipped across what had once been her face. I'm Alicia Brogy. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books, talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. This time, we read Anna Akhmatova's Requiem. We also talk to two experts. Alexander Segal and Alexandra Harrington. You heard Alex Segal reading his translation of Instead of a Preface to Requiem at the start of the episode, following a recording of Anna Akhmatova herself reading it. I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to Anna Akhmatova and the fascinating history of Requiem's non-publication. And I'm going to tell you a little about the poem. Then we'll hear from the experts and have a conversation about it. was Anna Akhmatova, and how did Requiem come about? Anna Akhmatova was born Anna Andreevna Gorenko in June 1889 in Bolshoi-Fontan, Odessa, Ukraine. Hers was an upper-class family, and she started writing poetry when she was 11, but did so under a pseudonym because her father was concerned that her being a poet would dishonor her family. Akhmatova was adopted from her maternal great-grandmother's name. She was educated in Kiev and St. Petersburg, studying law and then literature. When she was 21, she became a member of the Acmeist group of poets and also married its leader, Nikolai Gumilyov, who essentially abandoned her for Abyssinia soon afterwards, and they eventually divorced in 1918. 
They did, however, have a son together called Lev. She would later marry twice more and turn down writer Boris Pasternak several times. <laughs> He's the guy who wrote Dr. Zhivago. Akhmatova published her first collection of poems, called Evening, in 1912. Her second, Rosary, published in 1914, was a popular success and made her name as a poet. Her first husband, Nikolai Gumilyov, was executed by the Bolsheviks in 1921. Their association made it hard for her to find publishers for her work after that. Her books were actually banned between 1925 and 1940. And although she managed to avoid arrest, she was expelled from the Union of Socialist Writers in 1946. From 1935, her son Lev was repeatedly arrested, spending years in labor camps. Her partner, Nikolai Punin, died in the Gulag. Despite enduring personal loss, hardship, censorship, and repression, she remained in Russia and was deeply loved by the Russian people. It was in this period that she began writing Requiem, which she worked on for over two decades between 1935 and 1961. Given that Requiem directly criticized Stalin's purges, this was a particularly dangerous work. So to avoid the possibility of the secret police finding her writing, Akhmatova would compose her lines on paper, commit them to memory, and then burn the paper she had used. In what she called a pre-Gutenberg situation, she then taught it to close friends who were able to remember it well after Akhmatova herself had died. What's kind of interesting about this is that she kept redrafting it over time and made all her friends remember the changes <laughs> that she made too. <laughs> Akhmatova was only able to be a public poet after Stalin died in 1953. But even then, there was a repressive system of censorship at play that made critical work like Requiem impossible to publish. The work was first published outside of Russia, without Akhmatova's consent, in Germany in 1963. And it was actually suppressed in Russia until after her death though it circulated underground and became one of the best-known poetic works about the purges. It was only published in Russia in 1987. Oxford awarded Anna Akhmatova an honorary doctorate in 1965, and she died on the 5th of March 1966 at the age of 76. As for her feelings about cats, for Cat Corner... I'm afraid I haven't been able to find very much, although I know her protege, Joseph Brodsky, was a famous lover <laughs> of cats. And cats do make an appearance in her poetry from time to time. But I think she had more important things on her mind, frankly, than extolling the virtues of cats. Okay, Alicia, tell us about Requiem. Well, a Requiem, I hardly need to tell you refers to an act or song of remembrance for the dead, or even a mass for the peace of the dead. And Akhmatova's cycle of poems by that name does arise in response to the 40 million people, as Sharon M. Bailey tells us, who were arrested, exiled, or executed in the Stalinist terror. But the cycle of poems particularly focuses on the suffering of women whose sons or spouses, whose loved ones, were in prison and dying. A framing dedication and prologue or instead of a preface, as it's called, make clear the connections between this larger shared suffering and the personal lonely suffering of the narrator that's conveyed across 10 central poems. 
That framing narrative resumes at the end in the form of two epilogues, which continue to draw out this connection between the powerful depiction of personal grief that comprises the core of this text and the multitudes for whom profound loss was a condition of life under Joseph Stalin's great purges. One translation that we'll focus on in this discussion is by Alex Segal, and it begins strikingly with a negation worded like this, no, neither under an alien sky nor under the protection of alien wings. I remained with my own people then, where my people and their misfortune were. That negation reminds readers that Akhmatova, as Erika told us, did not flee from the Soviet Union during the Great Purges, but remained with her own people, sharing in their misfortune. That historical context, which the framing narrative sets, is the background for reading the middle poems, which tell of the self-estranging grief of a narrating first-person I. The narrator is a woman whose husband and son are imprisoned and then sentenced, with the son possibly dying. Although the poems allude to the real history and Akhmatova's own autobiography, she did have a son and husband imprisoned, as Erica told us. As Michael Basker points out on In Our Time, it's not clear that this narrator is necessarily her or that the events follow the same timing necessarily. So across the poems, the narrator spends hours at prison gates surrounded by other women in a similar position. Her will to live diminishes in the face of the suffering and the likely deaths of those she loves. Consequently, death and madness develop an allure for her as palliatives might diminish so much pain. But by the end of the cycle of poems, the self-estranged I, who has spoken of excessive loneliness and isolation, of suffering and madness, finds a variety of consolation. The narrating voice is no longer alone, but proclaims on behalf of so many erased lives, quote, I remember them always and everywhere, nor will I forget them in need's new hour. And should they shut my tortured mouth, from which a hundred million people shout, then let them remember me as well on the anniversary of my funeral, end quote. By drawing on and depicting personal suffering, Akhmatova gives powerful voice to unthinkable times in Russian history. She gives voice to the easily forgotten hours of waiting by women at prison gates as they sought to deliver packages to loved ones whose fates were often unknown and unknowable. This is not incidental. The cycle of poems ends with a hope that any fame obtained, that any commemoration in the form of a statue, would also preserve the memory of those other women howling at the gates for their lost sons, husbands, loved ones. And while a poem is not, strictly speaking, a statue, it is one enduring form of commemoration for so many lives lost to imprisonment and death directly, but also through what Sharon Bailey describes as the vicarious imprisonment and the living death of grief. We're going to kick off our discussion with an extended reflection by Alex Segal. Alex is a poet and translator. In fact, he's written a translation of Requiem. We asked him to reflect on Akhmatova's poetry and the challenge of translating her work into English. More than for any other work of literature, it is always less than satisfying to talk about a poem, for its achievement is inseparable from its melodic qualities. 
And it was this difficulty of making the words sing in English that drew me to retranslate An Ahmatavas Requiem. In large part, the poem occupies a place in the war, Holocaust, totalitarianism section of the 1997 NYPL Books of the Century list as an historical artifact. But to speak of it as a great work of literature, one must refer to its aesthetic values of mellow, Fano and Logopoia in its accomplishment as an episodic incantation that achieves a great sense of unity and cohesion. The first thing we should note then is that while the composition of its main sections, 1938-1940, was contemporaneous with the events Ahmatova describes, she kept editing and constructing the poem over a period of some two subsequent decades adding the instead of the preface prose section in 1957 and a leading quatrain as an inscription in 1961. The poem was first published in 1963 in Berlin and did not appear in Russia in its entirety until Perestroika in 1987. And it is these two leading sections that serve to frame it so that the two final lines of the inscription that will then be echoed in the concluding second and longest epilogue section, together cement Ahmatova's self-identification with her people. I remained with my own people then, where my people and their misfortune were. The poem's prose preface announces its moving force. The poet's heroic attempt, as it were, to overcome the centrifugal inertia of historical trauma as that which may not be inscribed. During the terrifying years of the Yezhev repression, Ahmatova writes, I spent 17 months in Leningrad prison lines. And it is a question she's incidentally asked by one of her ever-present companions in these lines that sets the poem in motion. Then... A woman standing behind me, who of course had never heard my name, stirred from her own, though common to all of us, stupor, and asked in my ear, there all spoke in a whisper, could you describe this? And I said, I can. Arguably one of the great shorter long poems in the calendaric fashion of Russian Orthodox liturgy, Anna Akhmatova's Requiem, consisting of 12 distinct parts, proceeds to symbolically reenact a passion play in which Akhmatova and her prisoner son are transformed into the universal mother and child. While the immediate context of the poem is the autocannibalistic predation wrote by Stalin and his henchmen upon their own people during the purges of the late 1930s, the red wall of the Crosses prison referred to in part four, outside which women, mothers, wives, sisters of the mostly male political prisoners, day after day awaited news of the condemned, is also the same wall outside which these same wives and mothers stood following the suppression of the failed Decemberist Rebellion of 1825. 300 in line, care package in hand, under the Cross's prison wall, you'll stand, and with the heated waters of your tears, dissolve the surface of Christmas time ice. 
by constantly referring to herself in the third person and reaffirming her bond with these anonymous women, Ahmadova succeeds in accomplishing the nearly impossible task of locating the Stalinist repressions of the 1930s within the Russian historical context and literary canon as a whole, so that her poem represents a particularly Russian self-identification of the poet with her people. Akhmatova is Russia's conscience and muse, a mother of Russia of sorts, an ethical nurturing balance for the fatherland that requires sacrifice. With the same great pathos and concision that characterizes her longer poem, that likewise consists of shorter set pieces, Akhmatova wrote in one of her miniatures, roughly contemporaneous with Requiem, in memoriam, and you, my close friends till judgment day, I have been saved as though to mourn you, to not be stilled as a weeping willow above your graves, but to cry aloud your names for the whole world to hear. Enter the saints, all fall to your knees, the light breaks through. In smooth rows stream the citizens of Leningrad, the living with the dead. For God, there are no dead. August 1942, Jurmin. Alicia, what was your experience of reading Requiem? I found it very powerful. I had not read this before, and I was impressed by the way that Akhmatova clearly draws on her own personal suffering and grief in the central poems, whether the narrator is fully her or not. As a, as a question that we will push aside, you can feel that it's a palpable grief that's recognizable. You can feel the familiarity of the way that grief can break down certainty and a sense of the self. And yeah. it really, it was very evocative and effective, I thought, but all the more so because it wasn't just inward looking by the end and from the start because of the way that there's the framing narrative set out. And the, that emotional power is kind of put to work in service to commemorating such an important period in Russia's history. I think that makes the cycle of poems really compelling to me. What, how did you find it? Yeah, it was an interesting experience reading it. I, I read several translations at the same time because I think the question of translation was one that was so, so present in my mind. What I've read of Akhmatova suggested to me that rhythm, meter, rhyme, all of these things are really central to how her poems work. Mm. And thinking back to our discussion on Yeats last season, we talked about the form of the poetry being so important to conveying the meaning. You know, that's kind of what poetry does. So I was thinking the whole time, okay, how... How does a person translate this? How do you translate this poetry? 
Do you try to preserve the rhyme scheme? Do you try to preserve the rhythm of it all? I read some translations that try to do that and they came out a little bit sort of sing-songy <laughs> and they felt a bit forced. And my, my sense from reading people writing about the original Russian is that it doesn't feel that way. Mm. It doesn't feel forced. So I think I preferred ultimately the kind of more prosy translations, the ones that focused on imagery and ideas and the affect, you know, the feeling that it evokes in a person as they're reading it and, and the feeling that it expresses. But I couldn't shake the feeling that I was missing out on something. So when, as we talk, I feel like I can talk about the imagery, I can talk about the feelings that are being expressed in the translations, but I don't know what that's like to read in, in the Russian. And so I kept feeling that Oh, I wish I knew exactly what she was saying. Because reading several different translations in tandem helps you to see different angles of, say, a word and think, oh, this translator picked out this connotation. That translator picked out a different connotation. For example, in the dedication, which is basically the third piece, Judith Hemshemeyer says, we rose as if for an early service, trudged through the savaged capital and met there more lifeless than the dead. Alex Segal says, Arising as though for an early mass, we tramped the capital, reverting to wild, to meet up with the breathlessness of the dead. So you see there's similarities there, but there's also differences. Savaged capital as opposed to the capital reverting to wild. You know, there's different kinds of implications. So... That was one of my experiences when I was reading the work. On the other side, it was very moving. It's a profound work of, of mourning and lament. It's really intimate. It's very mm. personal. But it's also steeped in an awareness of how that intimate grief is shared by so, so many. To go back a couple of steps to the lines you picked out when you were comparing the translations for us. I appreciated your selection of lines, partly because in both versions, there's this theme that Alex puts like this. We tramped the capital reverting to wild, this savage versus civilization, something about what's wild, what's maybe what's natural, um, what's barbaric. There's something about civilization and its counterpart, I think, that is a thread across the poems, even from the start, before such trials, I'm reading Alex's version right now, the start of the dedication, before such trials, all mountains crumble, a mighty river ceases to flow to the sea, yet a dungeon's barred gates remain rigid, beyond which gape the prisoner's cells and the deathly isolation of loneliness. There seems to be something so unnatural about this dungeon's barred gates, which remain ossified, which remain rigid, which remain hard, when even... The mountains crumble and the rivers stop flowing in the face of such profound suffering. And there does seem to be something about how grief can break down the natural order in your perception or for someone who's, who's going through these losses. But that contrast also seems to exist from the start and then to play out in different ways about what counts as humanity, who counts as human versus animal. There's different language that brings up this theme of nature versus something very unnatural about the extent of death and suffering and horror under, under Stalin in this time. In poem number five, she says, everything is confused forever and it's not clear to me who is a beast now, who is a man. Mm. What you said really stuck out to me too about how the natural world is brought in 
as a, a kind of a touchstone and stone being an operative word here because stoniness is something that comes up a lot. So even in the dedication, when she talks about, this is also in Alex's translation, there's the experience of nature. So for one living, a brisk wind freshly fans. For someone else, a sunset sweet caress. We know none of these. There's a kind of a dullness, you know, a dimming of the senses to the world mm. in a certain way. We only hear the stilled screech of the keys and the thundering pacing of the guards. So you can only hear, you're, you're blinded in, in some way. You can't feel, you only hear scary noises. And then later there's Hope's siren singing invisibly distant again, the ears, right? There's very kind of Hey, embodied details, it's me, it's me with my embodiment again. But then she says, the sun risen lower, the neva more fogged in. Again, things are darkened. The sun doesn't rise fully. It's dark, it's fogged in, you can't see far. And then she ends that poem, what hallucination in the Siberian blizzard, cold blizzard, <laughs> snowstorm, what apparition haunts their lunar disk? That's the circle of the moon. So moon rather than sun, things are getting darker and darker. We're going into night and day wasn't even really there. We're going into night or a prolonged winter where it's dark all the time in the northern, far northern hemisphere. But even when it's summer, things are not joyous. The sun is, is incongruous. The heat is jarring. Yes. It's contradictory. Yeah, there's something unnatural. And even that focus down onto the screech of the keys, the thundering pace of the guards, these are, in some senses, perhaps, less natural than the natural horizons, the wider natural horizons that are being occluded by them. Yes, yes, I like that. So in number seven, the sentence... She says, summer's ardent rustling is like a festival outside my window. For a long time, I've foreseen this brilliant day, deserted house. Alex says, so long ago, I had a premonition of this, a bright day and a house grown empty. By the way, number seven, the sentence is dated June 22, 1939. Apparently, this was a date when Lev was sentenced to the prison camps. So there's this contrast between the brightness and the festival atmosphere of summer, the warmth, and the desolation of what's going on here. I think that's something that stuck out to me again and again reading these poems. There are these very deep, almost primal contrasts between light and dark, between flesh and softness and stone, between warmth and cold. Did you find that as well? I was also struck by the contrast in this poem, and I think that they extend to include an iterative, almost excessive sense of isolation by focusing on the I. There's this repetition in, no matter what, I was prepared. I would survive with this some way. I have so many things to do today. I must slaughter memory to the end. I need for my soul to turn to stone. I must once again relearn to live. And that turning in of the poet onto her own or the narrator onto her own suffering and loss that's also marking a loss of the self. And then by the ends of Requiem, from the start and then at the end again, with the framing narrative to go back to it, there is something where the eye is connected and looking beyond itself to you and then to these others. And I think the poles that she includes in her imagery are connected to the poles that she explores 
in the depths of grief, and then the connectedness to other Russians. And it might be worth noting, you, you mentioned in the book history section that her son had been imprisoned multiple times. And this sentencing, it's not the first time. And so she's also, she's going through cycles. There, there are mm. grief cycles within these poems themselves. And, and so it's not just that there are contrasts that happen by happen chance, although that there is probably some of that as well, but there are also contrasts that occur, I think to a certain extent, cyclically at times and hold together. So for you, the contrasts are actually about finding some unity ultimately. Is that what you're saying? Like contrasts suggest a certain kind of isolatedness, this versus that, that then ultimately becomes something more. Is that right? Well, I mentioned before this article by Sharon M. Bailey, an elegy for Russia, Anna Akhmatova's Requiem. And Bailey is very interested in reading this as an elegy and asking to what extent is consolation achieved? What is being mourned? And in another article that I was reading called To What Extent Is Requiem a Requiem? <laughs> Unheard Female Voices and Anna Akhmatova's Requiem by Boris Katz. It says, to what extent is this mourning the dead? So what is happening? Why does it have that title? And those, both of those articles captured my attention because I wouldn't want to go as far as what you're maybe offering, which is I'm not trying to say that there's a unity that holds it all together. I think that would be overdetermined. That would be overstating something. I think the power of this poem is that it has both things and they aren't reconciled. There's something connected to the elegiac power and the symbols used, the imagery used, and the contrast, the, the contrast in language sometimes used, not because they are united in the end and it's all harmonized, but because of maybe the dissonance or the, or the way that they unfold to include an element of consolation, but one that's unwilling to be sort of consoled. The grief remains. At the end of this cycle of poems, it's not, ah, and I remembered the women and I remembered these things and now we can move on to the next stage. It's instead, she wants to resist no. death itself and the consolation that could give her and have a statue created that will be perpetually weeping with the changing of the seasons as the ice melts from its eyes. Yeah. Outside the prison, outside the prison, not where she grew up, not in some place that's meaningful to her where she spent, you know, romantic days in her youth, but in the sight of her, her worst and most grief-stricken moments. Yeah, I think part of that is because those prior ways of herself being rooted are forever changed. She says, and if ever in this our country consider erecting to me a monument, I give my wholehearted consent, but with one condition, do not put it by the sea where I was born. My last connection with the sea is torn. The grief, the things that have happened, they do break that connection. Hmm. Something in herself is broken and it remains broken. She's not coherent and whole anymore. That connection to childhood, there's something that remains broken. Not in Sar's garden by the famous stump where an unrequited shade searches for me. There's something unfinished. There's something unreconciled, unrequited. But here where I stood 300 hours and where for me the gate never opened. And it ends with a focus on the prisoner's pigeon, in Alex's version, coo in the distance, and on the Neva River where ships now are gliding quietly. And that's interesting to mm. me too, because suddenly... Are the rivers flowing again? It's on yeah. the prisoner, but then the, there's something, there's a return to the natural world there as well. So 
So yeah, so I don't really want to argue for unity across the poetic cycle, but I think those contrasts contribute to the sort of unconsoled consolation this poem offers or remembrance. Yeah, and the, the images are picked up across different poems and work in slightly different ways across them as well. So it's creating a unity, but it's also not unified. I think the form of this is really interesting. We found it difficult to work out. Is it a poem? Is it a poem cycle? What is it? Is it one thing or is it many things? And can it be both? I think it has to be both. I don't know about rhymes and rhythms and that sort of thing, but the repeated imagery definitely ties it together in a particular way. In terms of that sense of unity and fragmentation, perhaps, and isolation, I was interested in the voice that's being taken on by the poet throughout the poem. So sometimes she is I, sometimes she's addressing herself as you. Yes. It's number four, I think. She says, you should have been shown, you mock a minion of all your friends, gay little sinner of Skasko Yeselo, what would happen in your life? Like how you wouldn't, you could never have anticipated this. You know, she was called like the Russian Sappho. She was this kind of bohemian poetic figure being drawn and painted by Modigliani in Paris. Like, you know, she couldn't have anticipated that this is what her life would have been. So she's kind of talking to herself in that way. And at the end, she, I think, talks about herself as the old woman who, like a wounded beast, howled. There, there again, there's the beast and the human together. Mm -hmm. An old woman howled like a wounded animal. And that may be her. It may not be her. It may be any of the women. It's hard to know. But there's this changing voice that is I, that is you, that is she, that is he. And I think that's really interesting. Mm. Because at certain times, she seems like her selfhood is disintegrating. Absolutely. I it is predominantly an I, though, I would say. And that's, I think, part of what gives the power to those fragmentary gestures because it's disorienting when you read it. You wonder, is this still her? Yes. So there's a, an interesting thing between poem two and poem three. Poem two, she says, quietly flows the quiet dawn. That's a river. By the way, it's a river that is outside of Leningrad. So it's suggesting a broader Russian experience. And then she, she refers to herself as this woman is ill. This woman is alone. Husband in the grave, son in prison, say a prayer for me. And then number three says, no, it is not I. It is somebody else who is suffering. I would not have been able to bear what happened. There's this disavowal or kind of a displacement of what's happening to her saying, it's not me that this is happening to, which is, you know, it's, it's kind of trauma 101, what happens to a self, a certain kind of fragmentation. Yeah, and even the switching of focus between the Don, as one river that she speaks about, the Neva, she's speaking about different parts of Russia, and maybe it is a form of synecdoche in which little parts are representing the whole. But on the other hand, it's a little bit of a fragmented representation of Russia itself. Russia is kind of broken down yeah. and disassembled. And then going back to that quote you just offered us, husband in the grave, son jailed, please offer a prayer for me. So toward the end, this is picked up with an element of repetition when we read, so that now I pray not for myself alone, but for all of us who stood there with mm. me in the intense cold and in July's heat under that red and blinded wall, i.e. the prison mm. wall. And so again, there's maybe simultaneously, 
but there's something going on with fragmentation and then coherence or a shared experience. It's not coherence. It's a shared mm. experience of fragmentation. It's a shared experience of that intensity of grief and of looking for loved ones behind prison gates that are unyielding. Yeah. Just to add to this, another example, in the second epilogue, again, she's basically in invoking all the people she was with. Mm. She says, how I wish I could name them all, but the list confiscated cannot be found. For them, I have sewn this broad shroud from words, mm. though poor, yet borrowed from them. And should they shut my tortured mouth from which a hundred million people shout, then let them remember me as well. But this idea that she's now no longer speaking about her own experience, but she's weaving together the overheard fragments of all the people with whom she's been waiting and with whom she shared this experience. And she's sewing them into a broad shroud, which is, I guess, the poem. And then there's that shift from my tortured mouth to the hundred million people shouting through it. So there's that tension again between the the individual and the collective or the, the nation, I guess. Just what you quoted brings me back to something you had been saying right before that, when you were quoting, this isn't me, someone else suffers, I couldn't survive that. Because the next bit is, and what happened, may it be covered in a coarse black cloth. At that stage, she's, she's looking toward, she's hoping for that to happen. She's praying, she's, I don't know, seeking for this, some kind of funereal cloth to be laid, perhaps, and then that seems to be a need or a desire that she's recognizing in others and responding to in writing this cycle of poems itself and offering it. Absolutely. When you were talking about her connectivity to others, to the nation, possibly, I think that's so interesting as well. How does Russia figure into this? And mm. that struck me in the prologue where she speaks of the stars of death hanging over us, writhing in pain, innocent Russia. So Russia is innocent in this, under the bloody soles of the boots, under the tires of the black Mariahs. And again, that's kind of synecdoche where the boots, they're standing in for this regime of death and the black Mariahs, which are the vehicles that transport prisoners, they're standing in for this whole system. But Russia remains innocent in all of that. And that contrast is fascinating to me. It is interesting. So there's a kind of a commitment then to some idea of Russia, which is a very heterogeneous place and a big place. I guess I got that coming through as well, even in the kind of dissident form of going with a requiem, so much reference to Russian Orthodox Christianity. There are senses, there is Mary, there are icons, there is quotation from Jesus on the cross, there's a section called Crucifixion. Uh, Lev is carrying across, you know, this is a really, like the religious imagery is all over this poem. And I was thinking about Russia, Russian orthodoxy, but then also essentially the outlawing of religion under Soviet communism. I mean, am I right? Like communism is anti-religion. So there's something going on there as well. Like what is Russia? This is a very yes. Russian religion and a very Russian kind of format. And yet it is anti-Soviet in, in many ways. I think you're onto something with that, something really important, because what is Russian transcends the current historical moment. And Russian orthodoxy has deeper roots. There's something deeply Russian, whether she was a particularly 
I mean, different people have different takes on how religious she was, how devout she really was. But this symbolism is deeply Russian. It's pre-revolutionary Russia. And what does that mean to hearken back, to use symbolism that transcends this historical moment to speak to or reflect something more truly Russian, perhaps? That, or that was a mm. question that arose in my mind. And when I read those religious references, initially I looked for religious significance in them. And I, I don't think that it's necessarily lacking, but I did come to wonder if there isn't more significance for something about her conception of Russia or something, yeah, something yeah. a kind of national symbolism that transcends that Soviet era, that transcends that Stalinist moment. And yeah, pre-revolutionary nod. Yeah, I agree. I think there's political meaning to this, but and also symbolic and also broader than Russia. It's grasping at universality because she becomes Mary her son becomes Christ on the cross. And so she's tapping into a transnational, global narrative of suffering and of hopelessness, death, and the possibility of resurrection by using this imagery. Do you think that there is much on resurrection in this, though, genuinely? I think that you don't have this imagery without the implication of resurrection and the possibility of it. You would just talk about death if there was no possibility of resurrection. And I'm not saying this is all a hopeful thing because I don't think that it's all tied up in some sort of hopeful ending that things will be better tomorrow. It's not like that at all. But I don't think you can talk about crucifixion without the specter of resurrection. spoke to another Alex, Alexandra Harrington, about the place of Requiem in Akhmatova's work and Russian literature. Alexandra Harrington is a professor of Russian studies at Durham University and has published widely on Akhmatova's poetry. Alex, we are just delighted to have you on this podcast, and we wanted to kick things off today with a little bit of a personal question. Ask, when did you first read Akhmatova and what made you want to study her work? Well, it's funny you should ask this because at the moment, like everybody else, I've been digging around in cupboards so I can tell you when I first read her. It must have been 1991 or 1992 when I was an undergraduate at Nottingham University. And I was taught by a great Ahmadiyya specialist, Wendy Rosslyn. She wrote a really important study of her early poetry. But I have to confess, it was on a poetry survey module, made no impression on me whatsoever. It's just sad but true. But then I came to her in final year, so I took a module that was dedicated to Pushkin and Ahmadiyya and read Requiem. And that I do remember very distinctly. I remember reading it and thinking, wow, this is an incredibly powerful thing, you know, intensely moving, but kind of dignified. It's never mawkish. And it made a really strong impression on me. And I like the kind of what I thought at the time was this sort of simplicity of it. It's so direct. And I don't think you can argue with it morally. It's just a very clear indictment of a atrocity perpetrated 
by a state on its citizens. And so this really struck me. And then, of course, we studied it and I realized that it was much more complex than I thought. All those things were true, but it's full of intertextual illusion. It's structurally really interesting. So it's magnificent poetry. And it's, as I say, this kind of clear moral statement. But I like the fact that it works on those two levels. You can read it and you can grasp it and it can move you. But then when you dig into it as I say it's full of illusions coded little moments and that's what got me hooked on Akhmatova. Thanks Alex. What do you think first-time readers of Akhmatova need to know to get the most out of reading her poetry? Well I think a lot of scholars will tell you that because she's highly intertextual and because she deals with sort of a specific historical context and there are lots of autobiographical reference that you need to know an awful lot to read her and it's kind of true I suppose of her later poetry I mean it is it, it is kind of difficult in the way that maybe T.S. Eliot is difficult but I think you can overplay that and the early poetry actually I don't think you need to know very much at all they're really quite accessible short little lyrics predominantly love poems female voice she's a poet of unhappy love but it's again there's nothing kind of mawkish there's a sort of objective stance that she takes and she's very restrained and economical and in that sense quite modern and not difficult so I think that there is a difference between her early period and her later period and Requiem has a bit of both it's straightforward but as I say there are these layers to it as well the one that's really difficult is Poem Without a Hero I think you do need to know quite a lot about pre-revolutionary literary culture Ahmadullah's life the context of socialist realism, you know, the official prescriptions for writing literature in order to understand some aspects of it. But in short, I think it's overplayed. And if you start at the beginning with Ahmadur, I think you can kind of read her and enjoy her and, and learn more about her. I want to pick up on this theme of the early and the late works, and you'll have to guide how we understand this because we're so new to Akhmatova. You discuss in your book the ways that private and public intersect in Requiem as being different from her earlier works, and you were maybe alluding to that just now as well, and that this perhaps marks or contributes to a turning point in her works. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Ahmadova herself identified Requiem, or at least the 1930s, as a turning point. So her poetry was banned in 1925 until 1940, in fact. So Requiem was written at a point where she couldn't publish through any official outlets. And so she had a period of relative silence. She didn't write that much. And then in the 1930s, she says she started writing again and her voice had changed. She said her handwriting had changed and her return to the earlier manner wasn't possible for her. So the earlier manner was very distinctive. Really, her first five collections are pretty much variations on the same theme. They're predominantly love lyrics. She came from a movement of poets called um, Acmeus, and they were all about clarity. They um, reacted against the metaphysics of symbolism. So it was about, you know, she's got an embodied heroine in a kind of concrete setting. They're almost like little mini dramas, bits of dialogue. And she became very good at this. It was a really recognisable Ahmadiyya style. And readers could enjoy filling in gaps for themselves because there was always an implied narrative, the end of a kind of love affair, but you didn't quite know what had happened. And Russian readers at the time read them as though they were pages in a diary and Ahmadiyya played with that effect quite deliberately. So that was what she was known for. So what she starts to do with Requiem is take that earlier style, but pull the 
poems together in a kind of, there's a very loose narrative about the persona's son being taken away, arrested, put in prison and then sentenced and, and the different poems chart the kind of stages of, of shock and grief and, and disintegration of the personality. But in fact, there's not a consistent speaker, they're different voices. And yet, they come together. So one of the kind of oddities of Requiem is the way it charts this individual's story, but through a kind of dispersed subjectivity. So she does that in the center. She pulls things into a cycle. So one of the things that makes Requiem transitional, I think, is that it allows her to create a longer form. And then she does something that she starts doing increasingly, and she uses the paratext, so all the framing text, the epigraph and the in place of a forward and the introduction, and then these two epilogues. So she bolsters the whole thing. And there's something kind of grandiose about it. You know, she gives this <laughs> surroundings. And I find it fascinating that she did that in a point when she couldn't publish. You know, she's sort of imagining a material text with all that kind of paraphernalia. But then what that framing text allows her to do is take that individual story and raise it to a kind of epic level, you know, make that individual representative of the national tragedy to reflect from a different temporal point. She's in, in hindsight. So the personality who's disintegrated is somehow restored. The voice is much more like Ahmadiyya herself speaking unmediatedly so you get this sense of the poet outside the text and then it allows her to do the thing that I found so powerful the first time I read it it allows her to emphasize the importance of never forgetting this thing this this historical tragedy so it's kind of patriotic and national it raises it to that kind of level in your book you said something about it being the first overtly dissident poem by her and that was that really caught our attention yeah, yeah, it's civic. I mean, in a sense, what poets had to do at that time was socialist realism was introduced in the 30s. And what you had to do was write optimistic hymns, I'm simplifying, but not much, about people cheerfully building socialism with a collective voice. So lyric poetry is inherently suspect from a kind of Marxist point of view. It's all about individual experience and not the collective. So she manages to take this idea of the collective and kind of turn official culture on its head, if you like. You know, it's a kind of form of civil war through literature. So, yes, it's oppositional in terms of its theme, but also in the way it conceives of itself as a text. You've hinted toward this already. So just to push it a little further, could you contextualize Requiem within 20th century Russian literature more broadly? One of the things that is in formal terms, it's either a cycle or a payema, a long poem, depending on, Akhmatova called it both at various times. And that's a form that develops through the 20th century. So there are some important versions and, and Requiem stands as one of those. So in that sense, it's kind of enabling, it moves that lyric sequence cycle form forward. But I mean, really, you have to say it's unique. There are two major works of the 1930s, I would say, in poetry and prose. So it's Ahmatova's Requiem, partly for the reasons I've just described. And there isn't anything like that in the 1930s because you weren't allowed to write something like that. It was inherently dangerous. It shouldn't exist. So in that sense, it's completely unique. The other one is Bulgakov's um, novel Master Margarita. So they're, they're really unique for being modernist works of the 1930s that survived. So yes, nothing else like it. And then... I suppose the fact that it was one of the works within the 1980s, so this isn't artistic, this is more just the history of Russian literature being pulled back together. It was published in the 80s, long after Ahmatova's death. 
and reunited and you know math literature or elite literature rather became math literature overnight and it kind of made its way back into the Russian literary canon so it just has this incredible story so it, it on artistic grounds and as I say kind of circumstantial ones it, there's just nothing like it. To move now from the kind of Russian context specifically to outside of Russia this is a, a cycle of poems or a long poem that has been translated many times by many different people. And it strikes me that that is an interesting thing in and of itself. How do you translate the poems? Do you preserve the meter and the rhyme? Do you not? Do you go for, for meaning and affect? How do you think the poems fare in their various English translations? And is there an approach to translating her work that you think is most successful? Is there a, a favorite translation that you have? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I can't pretend to a to totally encyclopedic knowledge of all of them, I must <laughs> say. So with that caveat, as you say, you, it's an either or, really, I think. And Russian poetry has this, it presents real difficulties for translating into English for a number of reasons. You know, it's an inflected language. So you've got a case system that generates different endings for different nouns. There are three genders. So nouns decline, verbs conjugate, obviously, but they also have gendered endings in past tense forms. So the Russian's capacity to rhyme is really immense. So Ahmad is very conservative metrically. She's a kind of classical poet in that sense. Apart from the prose in place of a forward and the third poem at the centre, everything rhymes. I mean, the second epilogue is entirely in rhyming couplets. I don't think you can do it in English without an awful lot of padding and kind of contrived rhymes. So there are some attempts to do it and it gives a sense of the musicality of the original, but at the expense of what I think is more important. So to answer your question, I actually prefer the really quite literal prose translations or the ones that dispense with rhyme. So the really kind of standard one is Judith Hampshire, an American. And it's the one that you see in anthologies of world literature. It seems to be the kind of standard. And there is something lost because Ahmatova's rhyme, you know, rhymes bring about really nice closure. And also the semantic level, you know, some of the rhymes are kind of unexpected. There's one rhyme that rhymes Rus, the ancient word for Russia, medieval Russia, with Marus, which is the Black Mariah. That's brilliant rhyme you can't you know you lose that in English and then the other thing is that the rhyme brings poems to this kind of satisfying dignified close so when you lose them you lose that but I still think Hemshemeyer has something that the rhyming ones don't because it's literal and she's got the kind of starkness the original is very stark and Ahmad was all about economy and being pared down and I sort of prefer that Richard McCain's another one who does the same it's basically a prose translation but you get the kind of as I say, dignity and economy of the original, I think better. So you, you definitely lose something, but I think that would be my preference. She's also quite, she uses simple language. And also often, even though there's a sort of metrical scheme and, and exact and inexact rhyme, Ahmadova does kind of approximate ordinary speech in her rhythm. So that's another reason, I think, why that works to dispense with the rhyme in English. Okay. Now, the question that we ask all of our guests, the big one, is this one of the books or collections of the 20th century? Would you pick it out of Akhmatova's body of work? Yeah, I'd have to single it out. I mean, it, it just, 
for very good reason is the text that circulates as world literature. You know, it's, a, it's about trauma in a particular time and place, but it describes that in a way that's kind of universal and 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 general and utterly utterly sort of human so on those grounds I kind of think it's a bit of a shame sometimes that it's the one and it, you know there are other great works by Ahmatova but it's at the center of you you can't imagine her without it and then yeah for all the reasons I've described you know it was dangerous to write it was preserved in memory by a group of people you know for for years before it could be written down so it, everything comes together Ahmad's biographical experience those circumstances of preservation and I just think because as I've said it's this kind of very clear indictment of something inhuman and a, and you know it's about conscience and memory and our obligation to never let that be forgotten it is also artistically powerful as I say I think it'd be really difficult to say no let's leave it out well thank you so much for these wonderfully detailed and enlightening responses Alex well thank you it's great So Erica, in view of all that we've said and heard about this cycle of poems, what do you think? Does it belong on the New York Public Library's list of the books of the 20th century? I don't know, Alicia. I haven't read enough Russian writing of the 20th century to make an erudite or very informed call on this. My sense is that this poem stands as a powerful reminder and um, working through of a particularly important moment in the 20th century, not just for Russia, but globally. And for that reason, my instinct is to say yes. As I said earlier, I can't talk about its worth from, you know, the poetic technique side of things, the form of it. I can talk about the kind of the broader form of it, but not necessarily the rhythm and the rhyme and Ahmatova's mastery of the form. I have heard her referred to as the greatest woman poet since Sappho. I can't say I like that kind of qualifier, you know, woman poet, mm. as opposed to just poet. Mm. But I do think that that does speak to her power and her mastery of the craft of poetry. And I really wish I could read and understand and immerse myself in the original mm. so that I could really get all of those different intertextual references, as Alex said, which are kind of impossible for us to grasp in this form, in these translations. So my instinct is yes, but I wish I could read this more fully. What about you? Yeah, I'm largely in agreement with what you said. I am impressed by what comes across to me through translation about the craftedness of this poem, the way that images and contrasts, synecdoche, are used across the cycle, the way that the stages of grief sort of play out and isolation, but also a sense of community is held together 
without being harmonized or reduced one into the other. Those things really strike me. And because from what I hear from experts in Russian literature, when I've what I've read, what I've listened to, she's acclaimed so highly, I'm inclined to sort of trust their judgments yeah. and say, wow, I'm very grateful that translators are doing the work to try to share this wealth that I can access in part. But again, part of what I value is what you touched on as well, this intertextual connectedness. And I tried to read some articles on that, but they were quoting her in Cyrillic. And so it's like, <laughs> I can't read Cyrillic. So I can understand their analysis of the quotes for the most part, but I can't understand the words in Russian themselves that they use. And I can guess based off of my reading how that la you know <laughs> connects, but very imperfectly. So that gave me reason to believe, along with my own reading, that this is a poet of real substance who uses her craft in very intentional, considered, and even technical ways to try to do something that's bigger than herself. And I, I like that. I like that interest in Russian history and in other people and the way that studying her poem takes me beyond that poem. We're taught to try to suspend our own personal feelings about a work of literature in order to evaluate it critically and maybe more objectively. And I'm not sure I succeed in doing that with this poem. I found it very powerful. And that also plays into why I think that it, like you were saying, it has a transcendent appeal beyond its context. It draws on the particular to make that wide ranging appeal. And by drawing on the particularity of her human experience. And so that combination of the particular, the transcendent, that teaches me about Russia, that takes me outside of myself by tapping into things that I've also known, I think that's effective literary work. So yes, I'm with you. <laughs> It's hard to come up with a pithy and whimsical take on this poem to end off. And I don't really want to. No, I think I can speak for us both to say that our horizons were expanded by reading it and that it has a depth and a solemnity that we'd like to honor. Absolutely. So we'd like to thank Alex Segal and Alex Harrington for talking to us for this episode. All original music was made by me. Thank you, Erica. My pleasure. On the next episode in two weeks' time, we'll be reading Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook. Want to read along? Please do. It's long, though, so get a start on it. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. We'd also love to hear from you. Please get in touch with your thoughts on the book or this episode. You can read more about the podcast on literatepodcast.com, which is now... Gotten a little bit of a makeover. A spruce up. A spruce up. So check it out. We'd love for you to see it and we'd love to hear your views. Yeah. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Literate Podcast is our handle or email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. And if you like this episode, please give it a rating, write a review, click subscribe 
on whatever you use to listen to your podcast. Yeah. Tell somebody else who you think might be interested. As we've said before, we have a growing community of readers and we'd love for you all to join us in reading these books and talking about them and talking about books more generally. Yes, absolutely. The only thing I can really add to that is please support your local library. And independent bookshop. <laughs>